Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, June the 25th, 2023. Welcome back to Keynote. It's always nice when different themes on the show come together in a particular interview, which I think is happening today. Um, we've been doing quite a lot of memoirs, a couple in particular last week I thought were excellent. One with Bethann Patrick, very distinguished literary critic on her double depression, and another with Christian Cooper, uh, the uh, African-American fellow who got involved in a huge uh, outrage in Central Park. Everyone knows him. He has a new book out, a biography, uh, a memoir, autobiography of his life uh, as an African-American male and as a bird watcher. We've also done a series of memoirs associated with graphic art, one in particular with the Canadian artist Kate Beaton. Uh, her book, Ducks, Two Years in the Oil Sands, was a memoir uh, represented by her graphic art. So that's memoirs and graphic art. On the other hand, we did many shows on COVID. One in particular stands out, I think, with the prize-winning journalist Eli Saslow. Um, he had a new book out, Voices from the Pandemic, Americans Tell Their Stories of Crisis, Courage, and Resilience. All this is coming together, I think, covid graphic art, and uh, memoirs with my guest today. Uh, Adam Bessie has a new book out, Going Remote, A Teacher's Journey. It's a graphic, uh, artistic memoir in part, written in association with the artist Peter Glanting. And uh, Adam is joining me from the East Bay, just over the East Bay in uh, uh, Hercules, California. Adam, congratulations on the new book. Thank you so much, Andrew, and thanks for having me here with such amazing company. Oh, well, thank you, Adam. You can come again if you're so polite. Um, so as I said, we, we've done memoir, we've done graphic art, we've done COVID. All, all, that, all this comes together with your book, Going Remote, A Teacher's Journey. It's the story in graphic form of your experience as a community college teacher uh, in the East Bay uh, during COVID. So tell us a little bit about that. Why did you feel you needed to write this story? Yeah, so it's my story going remote of being of, of five Ps, being a professor, a cancer patient. I've had a brain tumor since 2009, and I just finished treatment right before the pandemic semester started, being a partner, a parent, and most of all, a person. And so all these threads were coming together at once, and I felt really compelled to start it on March the 13th, 2020, which is the day we all know. And that right. is you, you say that um, the, community uh, the community college system on March 13th, 2020 came to an end. It was the end, in a sense, of education. Now that, that was a bit of hyperbole because I'm still in the classroom right now, but for that particular time, if, if the listeners and ourselves can all put ourselves back to that particular point in time, it was unclear what was going to happen. Uh, and at that particular moment, I and my colleagues and students experienced this profound sense of vertigo. 
that the ground had been taken under us, out from under us, and what was going to happen. In the course of a week, I was given a crash course in how to teach online via, I'd never used Zoom before somehow. I'd used online platforms such as Canvas, Blackboard, and other ones, but not in a primary role. But now, after many years of working in the human craft of teaching, working in the classroom space, and having cultivated skills in that, that modality, now I was thrust into a completely alien modality to myself, as were many of my students who had never taken fully online classes, all while the crisis of the pandemic is happening. And while at the same time for myself, I'm dealing with being a cancer patient and being concerned about being immunocompromised and how will my own fate uh, play out during this period. So all those threads sort of came together. And in the initial work, uh, I was only focused on the educational component and my concerns about what would be the enduring impacts of this online exodus. And the book I finished writing in the end of 2021, Going Remote, and it ends without giving much away a bit on a cliffhanger. And as I've come back for the last year and a half, I've been able to sort of see more of the long-term consequences that I, I feared playing out. So in the chapter Growing Remote, you can see in my shirt here, and people that will be listening won't see it, there is a series of desks and then behind them a series of Zoom panels flying up. And so my concern was that, that, that the, the community college would be fully colonized by Silicon Valley technologies. Yeah, you call this uh, cloud college or the appearance, the domination of something you call cloud college. Yeah, and so in the book, the, the artist Peter Galanting did a wonderful job taking my horrible doodle and turning it into an actual piece of art that shows, yeah, there is his work. And it's in actually, yep, you can see it right there. That is that is the the Zoom tiles being produced. If you're if you can't, you're gonna be hearing this on the radio. There's like an assembly line with Zoom tiles going out, and they go up into Cloud College. So Cloud College, what I mean by that, and I think it still exists is when the entire classroom experience exists through digital platforms. So for my college and for many colleges across America, what that means is Canvas. Uh, but within Canvas, you also have many other apps that are embedded within that. So maybe a student is using Zoom or other telecommunication technology such as this. But there are just so many apps and platforms and plugins that inhabit that space. And so the teacher and the student are then connected to each other solely through the cloud and may or may not ever see each other. Now, uh, um, uh, Adam, what was the difference in your view? You taught it or you teach at community college, which is much more affordable, much more accessible, a different kind of demographic, different kind of culture, I think, to elite colleges. What was the difference? We've done a number of shows on elite colleges one with Evan Mandry, who argues that elite colleges are dividing, disorienting, and diminishing us. What do you think the experience of uh, COVID, how did it differ between a, a community college like yours and a, a top university, a fancy university like Harvard or Princeton or Stanford? Or UC Berkeley, which is down the street um, as well, though maybe not as fancy as Stanford. They might disagree with that, though. Um, 
but I would say it differed profoundly. And so I'll just I'll just tell a specific story that sort of and it's in the book and it's representative, I think, of many students' experiences. So in the opening of the book, you will see a student named Susie, and we're about to go remote for the first time on that March 13th uh, date in 2020. And she's like, I've never had an online class before. So I remember this student would be in the Zoom tiles and they were mostly blacked out. Um, that's If you talk to any teacher, they would say that. And then after a while, Susie stopped showing up. Her name wasn't on the Zoom tile anymore. As with every student during that period, I'd email them, try to reach out, no email responses, and then nothing, and just completely disappeared. And this happened in mass. And what I learned is when you look at the community college population, which I've worked with for nearly 20 years, it's far more diverse in every sense of the word than the uninitiated can understand. You have vet combat veterans, you have folks from Kazakhstan, you have 55-year-old students, 65-year-old students, 16-year-old students, former prisoners, every kind of racial background you can imagine. But I would say the sort of unifying challenge that I saw is that community college is the space that is the only point of access for those that, with least privilege. And those are the folks that we know were disproportionately harmed by COVID. So in looping back to Susie and students like them, like Jamila, another student I talk about in the book, these students, unlike the elite student who is in a dorm room, uh, they don't have to work, um, everything's taken care of. These students, many of them have uh, co-parental responsibility with their parents taking care of younger siblings. They have work responsibilities, especially if their parents lost their jobs, which many did. And many of them live in multi-generational households. And so Susie, for example, I learned much later when we met after the pandemic, when we were back on ground, she was in a multi-generational household with a number of siblings all competing for the same computer. There was limited uh, bandwidth on the wireless. It, the room was loud and she couldn't really focus on her studies at all. So for many of my students, unlike the elite students, many of them are the first in their college to go to college, whatever their racial background or ethnic background. So they don't have that. Right. Adam, we did a show with, uh, we've done a number of shows on this, with uh, this type of show with Stephen Thrasher, hmm. uh, who has a book out on COVID and monkeypox and what he calls the viral underclass and the way in which this viral underclass was so um, picked on, so unfortunate during COVID. I, I, I guess you're suggesting that the viral underclass, that the mm. notion of the viral underclass is not just a medical term, it's a, it's a cultural one and it's an educational one. Um, I don't know that term except for right now, but I agree with it 100% in that the community college, we serve a variety of people, but we do serve those that are least privileged. This is the only way that those folks can go to college. And so they get the largest impacts of racism, of virus, of every other component. And that becomes a challenge that if you look at Maslow's hierarchy, whether you agree with that or not, it's very hard to focus on intellectual achievement when you don't know if you have a meal to have or if you have to work all the time. So for example, I can't tell you how many experience I had in cloud college with talking to a student that was at their job during the height of COVID, 
one student in particular, I remember, was at a gas station. And he was talking to me while working the counter on Zoom, right? And you look at that versus some of the students that I know that are in elite colleges where they only have to focus not on their basic needs, but just on the, that. And so when I'm looking forward to what do we do about this sort of educating the under underclass, I, I don't particularly like that term. It sounds a bit pejorative, but I, I agree with it. I think that we need the support and the basic necessities on that part of Maslow's hierarchy. And that explains a lot of the challenges and dropping that students have in low success rates. That if we're not coping with these systemic underclass challenges, we're not going to be able to really have educational achievement. Adam, um, we've also done a number of shows on the crisis or what many people see as the crisis of education in the United States, one with Derek Black a couple of years ago on the crisis of public education in the schoolhouse, um, another with uh, Daniel Moak um, mm. on what he calls America's war on schools. To what extent was the crisis that you talk about in Going Remote, was it new as opposed to simply accelerating much of the inequality and problems and challenges that you experienced before COVID as a community college professor? It's an acceleration, 100%. And as you read the book, you'll see none of this just came out of nowhere. The book for me was looking at that we were, we were on a pivot point between a couple of different trend lines. One of these trends lines that's been long existing is the attack and war on public schools and public teachers and on unions and the denigration of, of education uh, as, a, as a profession and as a pursuit. Another uh, trend line has to do with the increasing technicalization and technologicalization of the college. And those to me are two different terms. Technicalization, what I mean by that is trying to reduce the educational process primarily into a quantitative enterprise. So using sort of MBA style thinking to apply that to learning. So for example, saying that educational success, and that is a real term used in our institution and colleges, can be reduced down to an A, B, or C, or a number. Yeah, and that comes back to your notion of cloud college, because, of course, it's the big tech companies, the Googles of the world, who are very good at quantifying all this. I know you've been affected by old friend of mine, Jerome Lanier, who's another Berkeley person. I was actually at his birthday party last month in Berkeley. Um, He's been on the show and also by uh, Neil Postman. I never knew him personally, but I've always been influenced by his work, particularly his end of education. To what extent do you see Postman as uh, someone who uh, pointed a lot of the stuff out in, that you, you're bringing out in Going Remote? And to what extent are digital critics like Jerome Lanier, are they correct in the current situation? Lanier is an enormous influence over this work, especially his. You know him, by the way, and he's a Berkeley guy too. Yeah, well, I'd love to. I'd love to meet him because he's 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 really had a profound impact on my ways of, of thinking about education in particular. And so his book, "You Are Not a Gadget," I read many years ago and it influenced. I applied a lot of his thinking towards educational systems, and he has a concept called. And I'm not a computer scientist. But, you know, lock it, where kind of poor planning decisions early on can lead to worse and worse outcomes. 
And so my concern in writing this book was really profoundly influenced by that idea by Lanier and Lockett, that the COVID crisis would provide an opportunity to make profound changes in the system. And this system needs to be changed. I love the community college system, but it is built on an old school OS factory model that really needs transformation. And my hope was that this moment of crisis we could use it to precipitate a more holistic way of doing education, a more one that is not so rooted in quantification and factory values. But my concern was, and this is something Naomi Klein brought up in an, in an essay that was profoundly influential at the time, an essay called The Screen New Deal. Her argument was that, that, that many big tech companies were and do what happened in the shock doctrine, such as what happened in New Orleans during the educational, uh, the disaster that precipitated Katrina, that the educational systems were taken over by charter schools. She, she showed essentially or argued or predicted that this moment of crisis would be used to usher in a screen new deal where more and more of the education. Uh, yeah. So, so um, Adam, has this, I mean, you, you, uh, you wrote um, that, uh, uh, that the college community college system as we knew it ended in on March 13th, 2020. You acknowledge that might be a slight exaggeration. How dire is the situation today? You're back teaching. We we're in a post-COVID world. Um, it was COVID. The COVID years were difficult for everyone. To what extent are things back to normal now in community colleges? Two things. I think I think the situation is dire from a number of, of distinct threads. Uh, and I, I'd like to emphasize first this idea of returning to normal. I've been asked this question a lot. I don't think returning to normal is a good idea. I think normal, many of the students, number one, um, we're not using the technology in the way they are now. So we, there's no way we can go back technologically, whether we'd like to or not. Number two, we're seeing a profound mental health crisis. This is, I, I think, the highlight I really want to touch on the most. I became, during the pandemic, a member of the campus's crisis team as a faculty representative. And this crisis team is composed of mental health professionals, um, police services, and many more, and deals with students that are in crisis. And I got onto this team because I would receive numerous, during the pandemic, and to this day, numerous emails per week by students with mental health challenges. In the book, there's one section where I talk about a student emailing me about not finishing the homework because of a suicide attempt. That's an extreme example, but it's become a steady drumbeat since the COVID years. And in fact, the American Psychological Association just published a paper about the teen mental health crisis. And I and my colleagues, whether they be in college or elsewhere, are all seeing this. Yeah, we did um we did a show on this with Robert Pearl, who used to run Kaiser Permanente, one of California's most influential doctors. He talks about the parallel pandemics of COVID anxiety and gun violence. But I'm curious, Adam. I mean, I, I take your point. It's certainly not you're not the first or the last person to talk about this. How does this impact? I mean, you you can't really address the core reasons for our age of anxiety, of mental ill health, can you? I mean, you're just on the front lines of it. Yeah, and so to loop back to what I said about Maslow's hierarchy earlier, when you have 
you, I'm an educator. My main job is to teach rhetoric, English, literature, right? Higher order thinking, argumentation. And when students are not showing up to class or are not completing work because they have a mental health crisis, that is the sort of existential threat that I see to our system. That you have students that, as you said, have this sort of this viral underclass is coping with all these challenges. And these are the students that I teach. And how am I going to be able to teach them effectively within that context? And as you said, this, this team I mentioned, we're only able to deal with a very limited, limited number of people. Now, let's say we were to scale this out and we had much more services in the community college system. That's what I'd like to see. That would be helpful, much more helpful, but it wouldn't resolve the challenge. And so I think, you know, I'm one very small component in a very large system, and I do what I can on the front line. But I do think as a society, if we really believe in the promise of a democratic educational system where everyone has the opportunity to learn, then we do need to think about larger wraparound systems to deal with other people that I can refer as a frontline emotional responder. I can refer out other people and they can get services. And right now they can't. We don't have enough services to deal with the problems. So you're I saying that as a professor at a community college, you don't have the expertise or the time or the experience to become uh, a therapist. You talk about it as an existential crisis. Of course, we always hear this stuff on education. Uh, Ron, we, we talked about this earlier today on, on our show about Florida. Um, Ron DeSantis looks a reasonably strong candidate. It seems to me he's, there is a, a likelihood that he, he, he not only will win the Republican uh, nomination, but become president. Um, he is someone who has articulated a very different vision of education. You're, of course, based in California. Do you see much of this, this looming culture war uh, uh, at schools and community colleges, uh, Adam? Are, are you fearful oh, yeah. of this? Is there a looming storm here? A hundred percent. One of my one of my colleagues um, uh, gave a lecture uh, that got spliced up and put on the Fox News. And so who was that? Um, uh, uh, professor. Well, I'll, I could talk about it later. This was years ago. I'd prefer not to bring him into it again because he's already gotten past that. OK, um, but but there is a very real in the sort of mass surveillance society we're in. Right. There is a very real there's a reality of that. I could be teaching my class in person or definitely online and that those lectures can be spliced up and put out and put in decontextualized and put into other contexts. And then you can have a troll army come after you. And that's the reality of teaching within the 21st century. And so, yes, I feel much safer than were I a professor in Florida, where there is an active autocratic effort to shut down all the kinds of teaching that I'm attempting to do. But I am very clear on the vision that I have for open access, multicultural um, education is in direct conflict with this sort of censorious um, ambition that DeSantis and folks like the group Moms for Liberty have in book banning and in censorship. And I'm aware that even in the context of quote unquote liberal Bay Area, there always is the, the threat of being surveilled in your class and that you being outed and then attacked. 
And I think that that has a very real dampening effect, uh, intellectual integrity and intellectual freedom effect on folks everywhere. Adam, let's end on a more cheerful note. Um, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the graphic art uh, in the book uh, is done by Peter Glanting, and, and, and it's very nice. Tell me a little bit about that, why you brought in Peter, how you met him, and what you think his art brings to your teacher's journey, your story. Well, if I drew this book, we wouldn't be talking about it. I'll tell you that. Um, so I, this is the power of community college because I met Peter through teaching. Um, his brother, Paul, was an assistant in my class. And as a final project for his college, his graduate school, he turned in a comic essay and the art was great. And I said, Paul, you're a great artist. He said, no, that's my brother, Pete. So we met that way. And over the last about 12 years, I've only been writing in comics form. That's the only medium I, I love writing in. And Pete, for me, I love science fiction. When you read the book, you'll see a lot of science fiction imagery. And what I love about Pete's art is he draws great robots. He has great science fiction, as you can, as you can see if you're, you're watching with us live, great science fictional ways of thinking. And one thing, reason I wanted to use his beautiful sort of provocative dystopian art is that science fiction isn't just a genre. It is a mode of thinking that sort of alienates you from what you're comfortable with. And my goal with this book was that we could, by the way, no one, if this was just a book I wrote, I don't know that many people would be interested. The graphic thing gets people to open it up and be interested, but it also it can disrupt your thinking and think about, well, what do I know about community college? What do I know about folks that live with cancer like me? And comics, I think, are really powerful, and especially Pete's comics, in unsettling the reader in such a way that it disturbs their thinking and hopefully provokes critical thinking and conversation as we've had today. Uh, finally, Adam, um, you, uh, you mentioned um, your, your, uh, your graphic collaborator, Peter Glanting. As you know from living in the Bay Area, the new, new thing out here is artificial intelligence in terms of language and the creation of text, the algorithms owned now by the people who also owned what you call the cloud college. How fearful are you? How dystopian are you about AI, both in the context of you as a teacher, the students who you teach this? I mean, you're right to, to be wary of the term underclass, but uh, the poorer people in society. Um, and, of course, more than anything else, uh, the production of content, whether it's books or teaching uh, by algorithms, particularly at the low end. Yeah, I, I have um, a significant concern about, about AI. I've already gotten a number of small papers using ChatGPT. At this particular juncture, it's very obvious. It just uh, it sticks out at you. And it's been more of an annoyance at this point than an existential threat, although I see that changing. Are students using it, Adam? Are you seeing? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Yes, definitely students are using it 100%. Uh, but I, like I said, it hops out of you. And I try to really design my prompts so that it wouldn't work, but it's a pretty flexible technology. So I want to – the main challenge is when I talk about <laughs> – right now it's more of an annoyance – is that I feel like Blade Runner. 
from Do Androids Dream of a, a Blade Runner, from Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. All the time now when I'm looking at a student project, I have to think about, is this real or Android? Mm. Is this synthetic or real? And that adds a lot of distrust in the classroom space, which is really destabilizing. Because as a writing teacher, as a teacher of argument, as a, you know, as a teacher of language, my goal is for them to be able to make arguments about things they believe in and are passionate about. And while, again, many students are not using it, it adds this layer of suspicion that makes it harder to have that kind of connection. My longer term fear, though, if I'm going to put my dystopian hat on, is that committed, the elite colleges will never permit everything to be AI. My concern is out of cost cutting, that much of our work will be outsourced to robots. Look at, for example, Saul Khan just came out with a new thing called Conmigo, which is an AI tutor. And I can see a future in which it's so much cheap, cheaper to have not just virtual tutors, but virtual teachers. And you can hire, you know, one human teacher and then have many other virtual teachers. I don't think that's in the, the short term, but in the long term. And in fact, I wrote a satirical essay about this in 2009 about teachers being replaced by holograms. And I was nervous, but now I'm actually thinking, knowing the ways in which community college system is starved of funding, that I could see a future in which studies come out saying, look, uh, the teacher, we get similar success outcomes from a virtual teacher and a real teacher, quote unquote. And I could see that being sold to the community college system en masse as a way to replace our students. Again, this would never happen at elite colleges because the parents would never pay that money to have their child educated by a robot. But I do see that as a long-term existential threat. Excellent.